Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Good afternoon. I guess uh, for me this is day number four. For this workshop, this is day two and a half. And for some of you, we're not even halfway through our time together. It's very exciting to me. This text that we're exploring together, the Dhammapada, it lacks a systematic arrangement. It doesn't have a logic. It's just um, phrases and teachings uh, from the whole canon of the Buddha's teaching, uh, just put together for your own edification, instruction, and guidance. And um, one of the uh, core messages that I think is right at the beginning of the text is that so much of the difference between contentment and unhappiness uh, comes from the way that we use our attention. And the way we use our attention really determines um, how we see the world. And maybe there is no world There's only how we see the world. There is no world independent of how we experience the world. So we have to pay attention to the way that we experience the world. And hopefully, uh, this uh, text will give you some guiding uh, sparks. Uh, And one way to work with this text... Has anybody here read the whole thing already? So one way to to work with the text is whenever you get a sentence that sort of glows, do you know what I mean? Like once in a while you're reading and some phrase, even within a sentence, it really shines, then just let that become your mantra and memorize it, you know, or memorize that paragraph and um, learn it just like you would memorize a pop song. Actually, a good pop song, you don't have to memorize it. (laughs) It just gets lodged in there. So, um, this is what you can do with the text. So, whenever you have a sentence that really works, like, um, hostility never brings about an end to hostility. And just really let that in. And you can also do this if you ever read a sentence and you don't really understand it. What, what is, what's he saying here? Then maybe that's the one you should memorize. You know, until it starts to come alive in your, in your life. Um, we ended yesterday talking about resentment and talking about projection uh, in relationships. Um, and I came across a little uh, um, quote from a letter that I wanted to read. And this is from a wonderful Zen teacher and anthropologist uh, in the US named Joan Halifax. Um, Here's what she has to say about uh, teachers. There is no teacher with whom I have been close who is still not in my life in a generative way. 
Soan San Nim has died, but his dharma lives inside me, a great gift. Uh, Tai, which is the nickname for Thich Nhat Hanh, has moved into a phase of life that's appropriate for his age, and his gifts to me are many. Uh, Roshi Bernie, uh, Bernie Glassman, um, a great blessing with his rugged and tender mind and heart. All three have been incredibly generous with me. And it's not to say that I could not have learned what they taught me in other ways, but really it's been the closeness with Bernie that has taught me the most. It's through relationship, hard-working relationship, gritty connectedness, that the Dharma has been shown to the degree that I could see it. Isn't that nice? I love this gritty connectedness. And as a teacher, she's speaking about herself now, and as a teacher, I have been bashed. And these teachers have been bashed. Do you know what bashed means? Like, pushed around. Punched. They should put that in the job description for the teacher. Able to be bashed without ill effects. This is just the times. And people seem to need to level out everything. To tear down the highest fruit. Good studies have been done on this. And yes, some teachers are not very good at what they do. But as a student, I can honestly say, it's not so much about the teacher. It's been about me doing my work, owning my stuff, learning from others and myself, and a good dose of failure. When we tear down a teacher, most of the time, we're tearing down the best parts of ourselves that we've projected onto the teacher. We attempt to destroy the person when it's much less violent than to straighten out the situation. Just withdraw your projections. Teachers are people. They have feet of clay. And people are Buddhas with hearts of gold. Relax is what I say, people. Just relax. Isn't that beautiful? What I like about this passage is she's obviously writing it because she's upset. Right? And she's upset because obviously she's getting bashed. And what she's saying is, um, yes, teachers get bashed. How can you not get bashed? Um, But uh, in her own life, she's seen herself do this to people. And what she's realized is that what she's doing is she's projecting onto those people the best and the worst parts of herself. So why don't we all just relax a little bit? And when I say teachers, I'm not talking about like this dynamic, just me here or something like that. I'm talking about everywhere in our life where we're afraid to um, um, turn our attention in this direction, back to ourselves. Because there's no doubt that teachers and other people screw up, right? Everybody screws up, there's no doubt. But when you keep focusing on the screwing up of the other person, and you kind of hold on to that, or you bash the other person with it, there's something in you that needs attention, right? Something in you that needs attention. So let's not focus on that so much, that external trouble. I don't like what Jeff did. I don't like what Harry did. I don't like what David did. I don't like that. Okay, fine, you don't like it. <laughs> so why are you still holding on to it? You know? And let's look at that. This is really important. So you can see that there's a relationship here, which is why I'm bringing it up between projection and resentment, right? They tend to go together in a bit of a feedback loop. And we also spoke uh, about loving kindness. And uh, loving kindness really helps us get over ourselves and be more gentle with ourselves. So even if someone hurts you, um, you need to let it go in your own heart. Uh, Otherwise, if someone has insulted you and you can't let it go, they're still insulting you. If someone has abused you 
and you can't let it go, they're still abusing you. And they might even be dead, you know, and they're still abusing you. Yes? I had a question to that because if it's in the past, I think it's more easy to kind of send love and um, forgive. But if it's continuing, yeah. you know, insulting and anger towards you, mm-hmm. how should you cope with that? Well, I think it depends on the degree, right? So if you're in a situation where there's a lot of violence towards you, you should probably just get out of it and get into a safer space to begin with. Um, and, you know, this all probably sounds very vague, you know, but, but think about that. Like, if there's so much uh, hostility towards you, it's, it's almost impossible to get enough space to work with it, you know. So you have to, to get, it, get away from it and get a little bit of distance so you can figure out uh, what move to make next. And also, when there's a lot of hostility towards you, it can be hard to know how you feel because you're just so busy trying to save your life uh, or defend, or like you have all this armor up. So sometimes you don't know what you feel. So you should get out of there. Good luck. Did you have your hand up? Yeah, I was just thinking that letting go and forgiveness, does that go hand in hand? Or, um, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> so you can let go without fear? Um, well, that's a good question. I think when we talk about letting go, the thing we're letting go of is our our perspective on a situation that's rigid. That's what we're letting go of. We're not necessarily letting go of the situation. We're just letting go of the compulsiveness or the rigidness or the clinging. This is important. So let's just let me let me just slow down, break that down a little bit. In meditation practice, when something arises, like let's say an old thought arises or an emotion arises, usually the teacher says, let go of the thought. Let go of the emotion. You've heard this a billion times, all of you, because you've been practicing. Let go of the thought that's bothering you. Let go of the emotion. If there's a sensation, let go of it. But that's not what we mean by letting go. You're not letting go of a thought, you're letting go of, of craving. You're letting go of clinging. The content can be anything, it doesn't matter. You're letting go of the, the craving and the clinging and the rigidity. That's what you're letting go of, not the content. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like, when a thought comes, you don't figure out what the thought is and let go of the thought. You just let go of the experience you're having of holding on. You say the pictures or the history that is, <clears throat> that is, um, you know, once you have a feeling, some, sometimes you have a history. Yes. And then you let go of the history, and you just no. See it as you a, don't let go of the history. You let go of your experience of holding on, yeah. not the content. This is really important. Mm-hmm. You don't get into the content so much. Does that make sense? So that's what I say. When I say letting go, that's what I mean. Number two, forgiveness is in your heart. It has nothing to do with the other person. So when you let go, you make a space where you can allow in um, the situation or your feeling. And then you can practice... uh, forgiving the other person in your own heart. Okay? And that's why it's very important to make a distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. Reconciliation is when you're working something out with the other person. But that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is when you're working it out in your own heart and it has nothing to do with the other person. 
You don't ask the other person for anything. You may not even communicate with them, or they may be dead. Right? I mean, actually, probably many of us in here, the person you need to work, the forgiveness you need to do might be with someone who's not in your life anymore. But So the first step is you have to let go of your clinging around whatever you're still holding on to. Letting go of the clinging, which uh, allows in uh, a more heartfelt experience of what's going on. And then to forgive the person. When I was on the airplane coming here, I, I told you... You know, I've been thinking about Philip Seymour Hoffman a lot, so I'm watching all his movies. And I think right now my favorite movie is Capote, where he's Truman Capote, the, the writer who wrote the, the book In Cold Blood. Has anybody seen the film? Yeah, or have you read the book? Do you know the story? Well, Truman Capote, I forgot what town he goes to. He goes to a small town in Minnesota, I think, or somewhere. I'm not sure. Where there was a murder... And he befriends the murderer. And they really develop this complicated, nuanced friendship. And um, uh, uh, when you're watching the film, you start to feel how complicated Truman Capote's character is. This guy who's using the murder in order to create a book that he's going to exploit. And he's not telling the truth to the murderer. But he's also, his heart is being opened by this murderer. And then, the murderer, you start to have a lot of compassion for him. Because you see how he's been used by the culture, by the judicial system, by his family, by the right... I mean, it all becomes so complicated that your heart opens for everyone in the story. You see? And then you can have some forgiveness. Because like you see the person you don't like against the context of their life. And then you can forgive them. But the first step to forgiving them is for you to let go of your rigid way of seeing the situation. And the reason why I want to emphasize that is that it doesn't have to do with them. And I think a lot of times we mix up forgiveness and um, reconciliation. D does this make sense mm -hmm. a little bit? So. Can I read you one more mm -hmm. paragraph? Because it ties into what you just asked. Uh, this is from one of my favorite poets named Pablo Neruda, who uh, it was from Chile. I hope everybody knows his poetry. I'm sure it's been translated into Danish or Lithuanian or whatever. Okay. Uh, write this down, Pablo Neruda. <laughs> um, here's what he says. To feel the love of people who we love is a fire that feeds our life. I'll say it again. To feel the love of the people that we love is a fire that feeds our life. But to feel the affection that comes from those that we don't know, from those unknown to us, who are watching over our sleep and solitude, over our dangers and our weakness, that is something still greater and more beautiful because it widens the boundaries of our being and unites all living beings. In other words, to feel the love from the people you love is a fire that feeds your life. But to really feel united with all beings, you should also feel the connection with the people who you don't know that you love. Everybody who was around you for the last hour when you were outside. To feel that love. And the only way to do that is to give up your rigidity. 
So, um, Pablo Neruda. Oh, it's not from a poem. Uh, tomorrow I'll tell you where it's from. I didn't write down here where I, I got it from. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up tonight. Okay. So, um, let's get back to the text. No. Before we get back to the text, let me say two things. Number one, what are we doing here? <laughs> like, really, what are we doing here? Why are we studying this text? Why are we meditating? Why are we walking so slowly? Well, we're doing this so that we have a deeper confidence in life. A deeper confidence in our life. Confidence. In our life. Confidence. And also so that we can see that everybody is also trying to do this. The people that we love are trying to do this the best way that they can with the tools that they have. And also the people we despise, who are so evil. Do you have people like this? <laughs> the people that are so hard to forgive. Well, they're also trying their best. And maybe once in a while we have to see them as Buddhas also. Because they've probably pushed us into our lives more deeply than anybody. Right? So, um, if you can see that everyone's trying to, to find this somehow, um, this is helpful. But, if you can't work with your mind, or in this translation, if you can't really work with what's inside your heart, then this is impossible. That's impossible. Because you just get blown around. So that's what the next uh, few sentences are all about. So let's read them. Uh, I'll offer some commentary. Then we'll have a break. And then this afternoon, after the break, we have surprise guests. I'm not joking. This is really, I'm not going to teach. There's going to be surprise teachers. And they're going to um, say everything I've said much clearer. <laughs> so. One who stays focused on the beautiful. Uh, I'm going to change the translation here. I don't think the translation's great in the next two sentences, but one who is compulsively longing after beauty is unrestrained with the senses. They don't know how to balance themselves around eating. They become apathetic. What's the word for apathy in Danish? And they lose their energy. Mara overcomes that person like the wind blows over a tree. Right? The tree doesn't have good roots. The wind just blows over the tree. One who stays focused on the way the body really is with regards to all the senses and has moderation in their eating, and has faith or confidence, and has energy, they're not overcome. By Mara, they're like a rock. They're like a mountain. Does that make sense? Oh, well, that's what I'm going to talk about. So, um, yes? Yeah, so, uh, when you see something beautiful, longing arises, and compulsion arises, and we want to have the pleasure of beauty for ourselves, and not let go of it. Has anybody noticed this? <laughs> right? And I'm not talking about like conventional beauty, like you see... Uh, Who's a beautiful... George Clooney. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, 
when I see George Clooney, I just want George Clooney. <laughs> but when you see something that it's not just beauty, like aesthetic beauty, but when you see something that gives you pleasure, you want to dig into it and you want it for yourself, right? Isn't this true? Yeah. And we do this sometimes, like with a piece of land. You see a piece of land that's really beautiful, and you say, "Oh, how can I own this?" Right? This is like this colonial attitude we have, right? Not just to land, but to other people, also, right? Um, so, um, if you don't take care of the compulsion that arises, the wanting that arises when there's pleasure, then Mara is going to blow you away. That's what this is saying. And it begs the question, well, who's Mara? Who's Mara? So Mara is the equivalent of the devil in Buddhism. Um, in uh, the Dikha Nikaya, uh, one of the, the texts of the Pali Canon, uh, it says, whenever a person grasps, Mara stands beside them. Whenever a person grasps, Mara stands beside them. Isn't that a wonderful image? Yeah. That's interesting because it was in Danish, Mara, right? Yeah. It comes with the nightmare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, possibly. So, uh, when, when the Buddha was sitting under the tree as a young man, working with his mind, working with his breath, he kept being visited by what he called Mara. And Mara had armies. And these are the seductive armies that try and lure you off the path. Um, In the Padana Sutta, here is what Mara says. For seven years, I've followed the Buddha's steps, but I haven't gained an opening into him. I am like a crow circling a stone the color of fat. Maybe I found something tender here. Maybe there's something delicious. But not getting anything delicious there, the crow went away. Can you picture this scene? A crow sees a rock, thinks it's a piece of fat, tries to get in with its beak, but there's nothing to get into. Like the crow attacking the rock, I'm tiring myself out with Gotama. That's the Buddha's name, Gotama. So like a crow banging into a rock, I'm tiring myself out. In other words, when the Buddha is sitting, he's not giving Mara a place to get a toehold, right? a place to dig in. You see. One time the Buddha hurt his foot, I think, and he lay down, and then Mara came and said, you are so lazy, lying down. You're not a real, deep, ascetic practitioner. I always liked that story. <laughs> because that's Mara in us, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> You, you can't do the first series of Ashtanga Yoga, you lazy <laughs> whatever, right? Do you know this voice? Yeah. And actually, this is the shadow of privilege. When you have a lot of privilege, it also comes with a feeling of never doing enough. The guilt of not doing enough. We should be able to do more. Single-handedly, I should stop climate change. I should solve homelessness. And then you tire yourself out and you don't see that. So, um, that's Mara. So, in um, Western mythology, the devil is, has different layers. And a really good example of this is in Dante, in the Inferno. Did the Inferno make it to Copenhagen? <laughs> So, um, in the Inferno, I don't know if you remember this, but the main character, Dante, 
uh, goes down into hell. And the first realms of hell are hot, fire, boiling cauldrons, arrows with flames on them, right? Heat, heat, heat. But the deeper he goes down with the poet Virgil into the realms of hell, the colder it gets. And at the bottom of hell, has anybody read this? Oh, at the bottom of hell is ice and everything's frozen. And that's the devil. And I think this is a really important way of thinking about Mara. Mara is a hell realm because it freezes us. So wherever in your life you've been frozen, that's Mara. Right? So on the one hand, the Buddha is where we're awake and fertile and creative and moist. Right? And Mara is where we're frozen, infertile, stuck, uncreative. It's writer's block. Right? Is a version of Mara. So the devil who is standing beside you is the voice in you or the voice that you've internalized that makes you feel stuck. Okay? Now, interestingly enough, the words that the Buddha uses to describe awakening are amrita or nirvana, which usually get translated as the deathless the deathless. Have you heard this term before? Or the unconditioned, right? And most of the time, our mind immediately goes, oh, the deathless? It's like some eternal place where I don't die. Right? That's what we do. Oh, the deathless. That's God. Right? But listen to that word. Deathless. I.e., not dead. Right? So Mara is when we're dead, we're frozen, we're a block of ice, we're rigid and we're cold. And awakening is the deathless, is when we're not dead. In a moment you're frozen and you see it and you unfreeze, that's nirvana. That's the deathless. And the deathless and nirvana are not a state they're not permanent, and they're not something you get to one day. Nirvana is a moment of being unfrozen. And maybe the next moment is a moment of being frozen. And I think all of us know that experience of really seeing how we're rigid and held, and you notice it, and you can release it, that's nirvana. That's the deathless. Touching what's not dead. So the devil, Mara, represents the energy of shutting down. Of literally being alive, but being dead in life. Yes? This comes uh, back to your Friday talk about <clears throat> seeing another story being possible for yourself. Yeah. For your life. Yeah. Which yeah. is beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Another story being possible for our life and another story being possible for this moment. Mm -hmm. Another, another um, less rehearsed version of ourselves can come up. And also another response uh, culturally. Our culture can tell another story. We have a lot of work to do telling a new story. Because if we're going to survive uh, as a species on this small earth, which to, I don't know about you, but it keeps seeming smaller and smaller, then um, we are going to have to figure out how to have an economy that um, is not based on extraction. And secondly, an economy that puts more effort into natural capital. 
because there is a certain kind of growth that we can pull off that is good for the economy that doesn't extract resources from the earth. I mean putting our money in healthcare, putting our money in education. And right now in uh, this part of the world, I know you guys don't you know, have the euro, but in this part of the world, the main message we get from the government is austerity. We, need to, we, we don't have any money. But that's not true. There's lots of money. We just have it in the wrong places. Right? So we should be pulling our money out of the military and putting it in natural capital. Because who is one of the largest users of fossil fuels and one of the largest contributors to greenhouse gas is the military. The U.S. military produces more greenhouse gas than any corporation. So remember I said if you look closely at anything through the lens of climate change, you actually get every issue? So here's a perfect example. You look at the military in terms of climate change, and you see a really good case for investing less money in the military and putting it in natural capital, putting it in the arts, putting it in science, putting it in medicine, putting it in education. So, um, I don't know how I got onto that tangent. But anyway, oh, I know how I did. Because that's creative thinking. And the opposite of that is the cultural devil. And what's the cultural devil? It's any story that is unsustainable, outdated, rigid, and not in tune with um, divesting our energy from fossil fuels and putting it into a more uh, energized, democratic um, um, economy. But and unlike coal, <laughs> uh, renewable energy, you can't make as much money from it because it's um, uh, uh, more, more diverse. There's so many more players that are more diverse. You can't make as much money. So we can tell a new story. Anyways, the reason I say all this is because it's important when you read this that this is not just about your mind, but this is also a larger cultural phenomenon. Yes? It's a question to the text. Um... There are parts of Copenhagen that are so beautiful. I'm so amazed. Even today, I was walking after lunch and I look up and the whole roof line of an apartment building is painted in flowers. I mean, it's the most beautiful thing ever. It's so gorgeous, right? Um, and when you see beauty, it uplifts you because the feeling in it is not just, oh, that's beautiful. It's also, um, Somebody took the time to go up there and paint something? And why did they do it? Because they were getting paid well by the hour? I don't think so. And that artist probably has walked around this lake, right? Walked around the lake after they had done this painting. And maybe their kids go and see this apartment building and think, wow, my mother painted that. My father painted that, or my grandmother painted that, right? And it brings, uh, it uplifts your spirit, okay? But the danger is that sometimes when we see beauty or we experience pleasure, there's grasping around it. I have to live in that apartment. 
And I'm, I, I don't care. I am going to get a job with the oil company so I can live in that apartment. Because everyone who lives in that apartment can only afford it because they're working for the oil company. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? And it's a very slippery slope. And even if you have really good intentions, you have to guard very carefully because money is very seductive. And even if you think, okay, well, I'm going to participate in this world of money, and I, but I'm going to give some of it away, and I'm going to try and get the best job I can, it's very, very slippery. But we're in it, so you have to use it. But we have to do it with a lot of consciousness. Okay? Because when you have money, it brings pleasure. And when you have a little pleasure, you want a little more pleasure. Right? And it's very easy to slip down that slope of thinking that that's going to bring you happiness. So you need to guard it. Because if you can't, don't guard it, there's so many places for Mara to come in. Right? Oh, now I need a car. Oh, well, now I'm making enough money that I could have a car that costs $500 a month. Well, you know what? If it's $500, I could get the same car with a much nicer leather interior for $600 a month. And if I'm spending $600, it's not that different to do $700. What's the difference, really? $600, $700, right? Do you, do you all know this? I mean, maybe your level is more like $10, $20. Oh, I want to buy a house and it's $200,000. Well, probably not here, right? Oh, well, what's the difference? The mortgage would just be a little more if we do it for $300,000. Well, and the interest rate in Copenhagen is like, what, 1% or something? So what's the difference? Well, it's a difference. And we have, so we have to watch all those things, because that's where Mara comes in. So Mara is rigidity. The price of becoming rigid is alienation. Being alienated from yourself and alienated from other people. And when you're stuck, you're incapable of evolving. So it's death. Death in life. Being dead in your life. So that's the energy of Mara. So the Buddha is saying here, you have to pay attention. Because as soon as your attention gets wobbly, Mara is right there. And how do you know your attention has gotten wobbly? Rigidity. Death. And when you're creative and fertile and open, Mara can't get in there. It's like a crow really wanting the piece of fat. But it's not fat, it's a stone. Can't get in. Can't get in. So, so how do you do that? How do you, how do you get open and creative? And if you first tap the Mara, it's first you are grasping mm. something. How do you just let go? You uh, wake up every morning and you sit still. And you create a space that Mara can't get into. And over time, this is called Hebb's Law, neurons that fire together, wire together. He said this in like 1949 or something. Have you heard this before? Yeah. So you reinforce the circuit of radical openness. And you sit there, open, breathing. And the more you do this, the harder it is for Mara to get in. And that way, during the day, when Mara is trying to get in, uh, you can come back to this openness, breathing, because you know what it feels like to do this. It doesn't feel so good. Right? So it's like this. If you make a fist, and then release it, 
Feel how your hand releases? But if you make a fist and you hold it for five seconds and then you release it, <laughs> it doesn't release very quickly, does it? So during the day, we should watch this, where we're gripping. Yeah. Um, at some point, you've talked about these two concepts, viveka and sapas. Well, yeah. And I was just thinking, uh, we, could, we could use them when we have to face beauty and not wanting to grasp Yeah. Beauty, but I don't see how to use them. <laughs> uh, well, there's a million different, there's a billion different tools. So one tool, viveka, is discrimination, right? Being able to see clearly, being unstuck and being stuck. Buddha and Mara, opening up, shutting down. And tapas is when you're starting to shut down, right? So let's give an example. Um, you see the apartment over there with the flowers painted on it. And it's beautiful. And then the next thought, I, I really like that, right? And then George Clooney walks out of the building and your heart goes like, you know, and he's wearing like a beautiful suit. So then you start following George Clooney around the park so that you can try and meet him. And then you meet him and you sort of smile and secretly you're thinking if George Clooney likes me then we could get married <laughs> and then we could live together in the apartment together just us for the rest of our lives it'll be so beautiful and I won't have to watch all the terrible movies he's in <laughs> because I can just watch him That's Mara. <laughs> but meanwhile, your life had this whole other trajectory that you were supposed to be doing. But you didn't do it because there was so much clinging right, to this fantasy of George Clooney. Maybe that wasn't the best example. What's that? He's married. He's married. Oh, okay. So, forget that. Being Buddha is when you recognize my heart is beating, I can go a different way. Stop. Yeah. And then something really powerful happens is that George Clooney is suddenly gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And you just let it in. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to do something about it. Mm -hmm. It's just so beautiful. And then at work, mm -hmm. somebody gets a promotion. And it's not you. And you're so happy for them. <laughs> they got a promotion. And you're going to say, oh, there's a little bit of envy, but like it doesn't take over, right? So when we say Buddha, when you're in a space where restriction is not taking over, then that's Buddha. So when you sit, you have the same mind as Buddha, right? When you're sitting, that's the mind of Buddha. Because you're making this commitment that every single time you're stuck and you notice your breathing and you come back to it, then that's Buddha. Right? The Buddha is not separate from you. You're a Buddha in every moment where Mara is not there. And when Mara is there, you're Mara. <laughs> The most important point 
that I want to uh, 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 make sure that we cover before we go forward is that the Buddha never attacks Mara. Mara attacks the Buddha. But all the Buddha has to do is let go of his hostility, let go of his rigidity, and then Mara can't get in there. That's the lesson here. That's the lesson. So, do you know how the Buddha works with Mara? Does anybody know the story? Every time Mara shows up, the Buddha says something. Does anybody know this? Whenever Mara shows up, the Buddha says to Mara, I see you. So when you have that voice that comes in, that starts shutting things down, you just turn to that energy and you say, I see you. And whenever the Buddha says to Mara, I see you, Mara can't get in. (laughs) You just name it. When you're caught in the energy of clinging, you should just say, I see you. And clinging is going to say to you, I'm never letting you go. Because it's true. Clinging is never going to let you go. So every time you see clinging, the only thing to do is say, I see you. But if you meet clinging with hostility, you're in trouble. And hostility can be, I hate you. I never want you around. No, you just need to say, I see you. That's it. Good luck. Thank you for coming. See you next year. (laughs) Um, I think that's all we need to cover. Maybe tomorrow we'll get to the next sentence. Uh, So let's take five minutes and see if there's questions or comments. And then we'll have a little break. And um, go smoke cigarettes or whatever you want to do. Questions now or after the break? No. No. Do you have one? About what you said yesterday about mindfulness. Yeah. And uh, it's said uh, that uh, it all has to start with it, the intention, mm. and then there's a need for a lot of concentration. Mm-hmm. And uh, then uh, I was thinking about intention and expectation. And yeah. Uh, yeah. isn't it that uh, the risk of when you have the intention uh, that you also have a sort of expectation for something to to happen, and then uh, there is no mindfulness since you have you, you are sort of the yeah. Of well, between intention and expectation is clinging. So there can be intention, which is, I'm setting up the intention that every time I wander off today, I'm going to come back to my breathing. That's the intention. But if there's a little bit of clinging in it, and it's really personal, it's like, Every time, I, every time I get lost and I can't come back to my breath, every time I do that, I am not a good meditator. That's expectation. Expectation is like, I have to do that. It's, it's like, it's a bit tight. It's making the intention a little bit tight. There's clinging in the intention. So the intention should be very light. Right? But that's just to get into the practice. Once you're practicing, you don't have to have an intention. The intention is just like to get you into the zone. And then you don't have any intention. So when you're sitting, you shouldn't be sitting with much intention. Especially if you have teenagers. When you have teenagers... Does anybody here have teenagers? When you have teenagers, it's important. You have teenagers? (laughs) You have teenagers? 
How many teenagers do you have? One and two smaller. Oh my god. Smaller teenagers? <laughs> I have one regular sized teenager. And I have these two smaller teenagers. <laughs> yeah, because teenage is basically like six. Um, with teenagers, you need to have very strong intentions as parents. I have the intention that I want my kids to really know what kindness is and have gratitude and you know these things but you have to really watch if there's tight expectations around that because then they're going to suffer and you're going to suffer everyone's going to suffer does this make sense a little bit this distinction was there more to the question no but okay. i have to think about it yeah you can take all kinds of now. The, the walking path meditation, but can you elaborate on that? Because I mean, that's a bit frustrating, and I feel that I'm more focused on not being getting up to the guy in front of me instead of being inside. Yeah. Well, walking meditation is tricky because we never walk without going somewhere. Right? We never walk without going somewhere. So you're training yourself how to just feel the body walking, breathing in space. And then, so you have to watch whenever there's clinging around it, like, um, this has no meaning, what's the point of this? And to really see that it has no meaning, it has no point. Right? What's that like? Or, uh, I want to, does anybody here want to pass the person in front of them? <laughs> like, they're so annoying. I just, I think I'm going to make pass. <laughs> And you signal. <laughs> in Germany. Yeah, in Germany you have to have two lanes. <laughs> <laughs> in walking meditation. <laughs> so walking is a continuation of the sitting practice, but it has more movement in it. And uh, the balance... Are you here for the rest of the time? Yeah. We're going to change the walking a little bit tomorrow. When we did walking here, do we usually do the two-speed walking? Or do we always do it slow? Yeah, we'll do we'll do that tomorrow. We'll try it. But anyways, um, um, with walking, the idea is you're going really slow, so slow that you really feel like you're not going anywhere, and you just work with a mind that wants to go somewhere. And then um, when you do faster walking, it's nice in the group to try and stay connected to your feet and your personal experience but also be aware that the whole room is walking together. And then it's an it's interesting balance between being aware of your experience, but also feeling how we're just one body walking. Did anybody get that a little bit in the walking meditation, where you're just aware of the whole room walking, and it doesn't mean anything, and it's an amazing thing how the whole room self-organizes to walk. So that's what's happening in walking. Isn't it kind of disappointing? <laughs> I was trying to get some kind of flow feeling or something in, in what I get when I'm running. You get some kind of where you just are in the run. I was yeah. trying to get that in the walking, but I didn't really get it. Yeah, so if you give up trying to get it in the walking, then maybe you'll find a flow. <laughs> but if you're in the walking going, God, I got to get the flow, then there won't be any flow because you've got to get something out of it. So let go of needing to get anything out of the walking, and it'll be better. Like, I don't think that the person who painted the flowers on the apartment building um, thought, you know, one day some Canadian meditation teacher is going to come and tell everybody what a great painter I was. <laughs> right? They probably just painted the building, enjoying the process of painting, and sometimes got distracted and thought, oh God, you know, it's raining, and 
Or maybe they made a mistake and sometimes they looked up and thought, oh, you know, I could have done better. But probably in the moment of painting that many flowers, does everybody know the apartment or maybe not? Probably haven't noticed it. Walk by it every day. Um, There was probably many times they were just in the experience of painting. Yes. <clears throat> Regarding Buddha and Mara, I <clears throat> sometimes think of it as love and fear. Yeah. Especially when I'm working with people who are very yeah. get very hostile. Yeah. Um, to to sort of get the space so I can sort of separate their problem and my yeah. myself. Yeah. I think to myself, if they're not loving, they're fearful. Yeah. And yeah. I don't have to know why they're fearful, but yeah. just knowing that they're fearful right. makes me um, able to be with them. Yeah. And sort of, I don't have to understand. I yeah. can just say, well, are you very frightened or whatever? And then so, there's yeah. a connection and we can talk about what yeah. really is going on inside of them instead of they project all their angry yeah. feelings on, yeah. on me. So that's the technique that the Buddha is using. Mm-hmm is when you notice the fear, you just say, I see you. And I think that's what you're saying. Exactly. You're with but the person and you devil, say, I, I see you. I mean, you. it's easier to sort of be with fear than to be with the devil. Mm-hmm. If, you, if I sit in front of a person who is a gang member, he's yeah. tattooed and all that, yeah. and I think of, his, of him as a devil, yeah. I sort of, I, I, I can't, it's, it's more difficult for me to see him as a human being. Yeah. Whereas if yeah. I see him as fearful, yeah. Then I can see him exactly. as, as, as a exactly. human being. Yeah. Just Beautiful. acting a way that he's yeah. learned to survive. Yeah. 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 And what a beautiful gift for that person. Yeah, exactly. For someone to say to them, but, I yeah, see you. And it's a gift to me. Yeah. yeah. Because for suddenly sure. I'm with a human being that yeah. I would, in other circumstances, I would just say, well, he's just a gang member, you know, he's, yeah. he's all this I don't like. Yeah. But by being with him, mm-hmm. he, he teaches me something. Yeah, exactly. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Last comment, and then we're going to um, yeah. go, go find George Clooney. <laughs> this is terrible. I don't even like George Clooney. I don't know what I mean. Do Bad example. What's that? Do no, I don't know him. I've never seen him in real life. I, I kind of know what he looks like. I don't like his movies, but I'm sure he's a really nice person. He seems nice. He seems nice. Yeah. Notice that for me, the like the tricky thing about Mara is maybe more where it's. Um, like uh, positive feelings that he invokes. Like I remember from Stephen Fletcher mm. that Mara also comes and sees that oh Buddha is so tired and he says, like not just like down, take a minute. Yeah. Take a break, have some have some food yeah. like that. So for me I, yeah. that really made me think about what that would be in my mind. Yeah, like the first the first example you know, Stephen Batchelor's example that, that he likes to use there is very similar to the, like, I have such a stressful job in advertising, so I really should have a Range Rover. Because, like, it's so, I'm so tired all the time, and so I need a really, you know, nice car. And then, um, you know, I don't want my kids to just be in, like, school with every other kid. They should be in the best school possible. And so I need bigger bonuses to pay for all of my kids to be in private schools. And all the kids in private schools are going to private summer camps, and they should all be going to private summer camps for a good education. And, and like, it goes on and on and on. Then we need the other home, because everyone else has the other home. And the other home is still in Denmark. It's still cold, so we also need another home in France. You know this whole story, right? And then suddenly there's this whole kind of entitlement that comes that's also Mara, right? And it just comes with those little moves all the time for a little more pleasure. And over time, all this builds up, and then you say to yourself, what is, you know that talking head song? 
uh, how does it go? Uh, this is not my beautiful wife. This is not happening. This is not my beautiful house. You know that song? Um, I'm dating myself a little bit, I guess. But anyways, um, uh, then one day you wake up and you say, what is this life that I'm living like? I thought all this was so important. And it wasn't like you had some big idea, all this was so important. It was just these little moves you made all the time that slowly kind of took you away into this treadmill where those things really, at the end of the day, Range Rover, I've been in one, are the most beautiful interior of a car ever. If you, has anyone here ever been in a Range Rover? You have a Range Rover. If you ever go in a Range Rover, you'll want one. You can sit in Lotus <laughs> in the back seat. Okay, this is like the most, and, and you'll want you'll want to have a Range Rover. So you have to just watch that a little bit because at the end of the day, when you get the Range Rover, it's still a car. <laughs> It still only takes you from here to there. It can't really do very much else, really. So Mara is also um, that little voice, like, oh, it's okay, you know, just enjoy yourself. And sometimes you really need that, and sometimes you don't need that. So... A Range Rover is not sponsoring this workshop. <laughs> Just so you know. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. Let's uh, go outside and try and find George. <laughs>